2: Hello, and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Temp here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Great episode for you. Listen, real quick, this is your last chance to enter the giveaway. Subscribe to my new podcast called The Week on Earth. You won't regret it. And if you subscribe, just take a screenshot of that, email it to chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com, and you will be entered into the giveaway to win either a brand new Fitbit or Kindle Fire sent directly to you from Amazon. We'll get your information. We will announce those in the next episode and via email. So again, go subscribe to The Week on Earth, an incredible story-based, highly produced podcast on the most interesting climate change stories around, including Why Toilet Paper is Killing the Planet how we can take glass bottles, turn them into sand, and repair our shorelines, and how we save the ozone layer, to just name a few topics. Okay, let's get into our episode this week. We are talking to two incredible thinkers, so two for the price of one, Jeremy Utley and Perry Claibon. Now listen, both of them come from Stanford's renowned Hasso Platner Institute of Design, also known as the D School. And they co-authored a new book, Coming out probably as you listen, called Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. I wanted to talk to them because I see in today's world this need to continually come up with new ideas in a free way, in a non judgmental way that allows us to create new ways forward. And I know for me, sometimes it's tough because I'm always judging my ideas. And so I wanted to learn what's the key to creating new, better, innovative ideas that I can use to be more successful? And of course, how can you do it as well? As I mentioned, Perry and Jeremy come from Stanford's D School, where they draw upon their combined decades of experience leading this launchpad accelerator and advising some of the world's most innovative organizations like Microsoft, Michelin, Hyatt, and more. So excited to bring this to you. Let's turn it over to Perry and Jeremy as we talk about their brand new book, Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. Enjoy. First of all, brilliant title, Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. And I'll tell you, as somebody who's consulted for hundreds of business and seen hundreds of businesses, I wholeheartedly agree with that very sentiment. But here's what I find, that that's what companies need and say but they operationalize against it. They build an environment where they make it very hard to freely generate ideas and innovate to look long-term, and they focus extremely short-term, putting their people in short-term thinking. And I'm curious if you have seen that and what, the, what your favorite antidote to that might be.
1: We see it all the time. And what's what's uh interesting is we we've had the pleasure to teach so we teach these classes right we've got graduates leaving all the time one of the classes that we um we run with a um a compatriot at stanford katherine segovia is uh called d leadership design leadership so we send students into organizations to lead change all right and you think they go in all optimistic and this is while they're still in school we're very proud of it because they have that experience you know, they, they come back and say, it's really interesting in the meeting, nobody writes stuff down, you know, in the meeting, people are coming 30 minutes late to all this innovation. So I really want to brainstorm. We really want them to generate ideas. And we sort of go through that and then go through what are the antidotes? And there's, there's not one. And the book is, is filled with a lot of different methods. And if there's anything I wisdom, I would sort of impart to your listeners is it, not all the tools work for everybody, you know? It's, it's figuring out the things you can do and perhaps on the margins, meaning um, a lot of times in companies, it's it's double delivery. And I'm sure you have experience with this and your listeners do. I'm going to do some innovative stuff and I'm going to do the PowerPoint that everybody seems to want to have, you know, that I need to deliver. So, so that explore some of the tools. And we've done a lot of really simple ones. We can talk about some of those and think about double delivery. You have to do both. You got to kind of live in both worlds. Do you feel
2: that the need to do double delivery is increasing or has it always been that way and we just always like to think it's harder today than it was?
3: Well, Chris, I would ask you, what do you mean by double delivery? Let's make sure Mm. we're using the same vocabulary here.
2: So the way I think about it is, hey, I need you to think long-term strategically innovative, but I also need you to execute on the day-to-day, in-our-face fire drills at the same time simultaneously, essentially.
3: Yeah, definitely. There's certainly because of the the rate of disruption is increasing. I think there is a sense that everybody has to think a little bit long term, but no one is really freed to think long term. And so that the need for double delivery has increased because basically the future is now everybody's business. Everybody knows that if they only do what they're currently doing, they're going to be obsolete or bankrupt. But no one is really freed from attending to the core or given any kind of demarcation or guidance around when to do one or the other. So it's just both now. And that's, I think, the the pinch that people feel. I feel
2: like there's no change in sight. And so I think I'm begging for a little optimism from your vantage point, which is seeing the next level of leaders, seeing the current leaders and the research in between. That's why I was excited to talk to you all. Will we ever get there to where people can use, you know, the prefrontal cortex, the thing that makes us top of the food chain and be really long term and strategic and innovative?
1: The answer is we do all the time. And it's 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 uh, you can be more thoughtful about it and bring it into practice. I'm sure, Chris, you did some things to we talked earlier in the in the sort of the banter period to warm us up and get us all comfortable. Um, a little bit about sort of you read just enough of the book to be interested, but not enough you can go into detail with us. You
3: right, know what I mean? Right.
1: So so that's a creative act, right? And that's to me, that was a really good example of some of the things in the you're you're able to ask interesting questions and be curious because you have a practice associated that you know, and you mentioned mm. yourself, like I don't spend an entire day reading the book. And that's you know what I mean? I but you figured out a creative practice that works for you to be a better host and have a better you know rapport with guests and you built that practice over time you've been thoughtful about it and i think it's the if there's an idea it's to be thoughtful about your creative practice and this is all the time with students we'll say to students what's your creative practice you know and they say what do you mean then we talk about it but if we had to have that conversation with you you'd say oh one of the things i do is read a little bit of the book, just enough to get the premise and just to get to enough. So I'm interested in a couple of the lead in questions and I'm interested in some general questions. And then I'm actually gonna be engaged in the interview. That's a practice that you built over time. I'm sure that wasn't, you've done hundreds of podcasts. That wasn't the way you did it initially. You know, and, and the advice to people is think about what is your creative practice or what are you doing? Are you, you? I, I love the story about you and your, your um, partner, John you know, leaving, right? That's, we talk about that, leaving and going to Arizona, I think, right? And just spending time away from the work to get the idea to do this kind of work. Yeah, That's a practice, right? And if you ever got really stuck, I'm sure you use that again in your life. That's something we talk about in the book is being stuck. It's a really good thing to think about how to step away. You can step away for five minutes or you can step away for five days.
3: One of the things that we would, that Perry's really getting at here is this idea of an ability, a lot of people think about innovation as an event, um, or an activity, or a workshop, a hackathon, a sprint. Not to you know fire shots across the bow, but almost always there's an event rather than a capability. But what we would recommend for listeners is think about an ability that you've developed over time. Any you know hobby that you enjoy, anything you do, it could be playing piano, it could be painting, it could be a foreign language. One question is, how long did it take you to develop that mastery? Definitely a
2: long time. I know in my case, I mean, you know, if I were to just take this podcast, which I don't know if I've mastered, but multiple years to where I felt like I could get on and communicate with anybody.
3: You're okay. Okay. So, so let's, let's break that down. The first part of the answer is multiple years, but this, the more important part, and actually the first part that that, that you said was, and I don't think I've mastered it yet right and so what you see there is with any capability somebody cares about one it takes effort a conscious deliberative practice to use perry's word, and two there's this sense of i haven't attained yet where is that mindset as it pertains innovation in organizations people go there's like this there's like this all hands email we got a 30 minute emergency brainstorming meeting you know all hands on deck. And it's like, people are frantically trying to like lick the water fountain to get COVID and go home. Yeah, right. So yeah. it's like, nobody wants that innovation event, but who is approaching it with that mindset of a capability or a practice that they're routinely, att- like, if you play the piano, you do your scales. If you're a swimmer, you swim laps, right? If you are an innovator, what are your scales? What are your laps? Most people have a blank stare. And, or they go, oh yeah, I did the workshop. Have you seen my LinkedIn badge? I've got a LinkedIn badge. And for us, we go, that's not how anyone who really thinks about an ability thinks about it. And for whatever reason, when it comes to innovation, we have this like weird kind of, you know, collective hallucination that a LinkedIn badge suffices for an ability.
2: What I'm hearing is, you know, innovation is a capability that needs to be built and nurtured just like any other, which I think people would go, okay, okay. And then they'll say, so what I'm hearing from Jeremy and Perry is I have to find out what my processes can be, what my inputs can be to get me into this idea flow. But the other thing is I get a sense that this is more than just like, put me in the right environment, call it a brainstorm, and I will use the part of my brain that is naturally creative. Like, you know, there's got to be some tie there in between where I started and this very corporate idea of like, call it a brainstorm, give us cookies and caffeine in 30 free minutes and we will all have ideas for
3: it. Well, it's like sit down at a piano and play me a piece of Mozart.
2: Right, right.
3: Right. The piano's there, like the the, the post-its are there, the whiteboard's there. The tools are one thing. And a piano is like, imagine having like a grand piano in your living room. Somebody says, please sit down and play a concerto. (laughs) <laughs>
1: and think about it, Chris, I, I give your listeners an analogy. They, if they're working in business, is you've got a toolkit, right, for your business. Largely, the toolkit is, you know, Microsoft Teams, PowerPoint, and email. You know, that's that's kind of your toolkit. And then you go in there and you're super versed with those tools. I know how to, you know, queue up emails. I know how to write a great email. I know how to do this stuff. I know how to look pro on a PowerPoint. Know, and you're, you're getting better and better and better and honed and honed and honed. And as a result, you tend to go into the toolkit and grab that tool, right? I've got something for my meeting. I'm going to grab PowerPoint. I got a bunch of existing ones. I can quickly, t- you know, imagine a world where ideation techniques like brainstorming is just as viable a tool. And it's it's the thing if I you know if I go downstairs to my toolkit and I haven't used a you know pliers or something I haven't tool I haven't used in a while I pinch my skin or I do say it doesn't work that well the first time. And the part of the book is. You know, there's loads and loads of tools. And the the interesting thing to me is the why of it, like why in the world does this matter? Why are we passionate about it? It's that, you know, the more we looked at research that, you know, this fellow Bob Sutton, Professor Sutton, who we teach with at Stanford had done with Andy Harganon in the late nineties about the number of ideas needed to be generated to get to commercial outcomes, did all this analysis of these companies. And it's it's amazing, it's about 2000 ideas if you backtrack and you go through to, to come up with one commercial outcome, okay? And that's, we would talk about this and it's still mind boggling. You know, do you come up with 2000 ideas for the best, you know, for the pocket? Like, you know, think of the scale of that, right? So if that's true, and we, we began to get versed with it and really look at, you know, corporate accelerators and see, this is, this is true. Largely people who are successful routinely innovating are generating all kinds of material, are really thoughtful about idea generation great so that makes every problem an idea problem and if every problem if your biggest problem you know if you've got to make a presentation at work the best thing your listener could do is come up with a lot of ideas very at the very beginning of the process and continue throughout the process to generate ideas it generates options it um it generates you know outlandish crazy ideas that can be brought back down to reality. It generates ideas that are, it gets all the basic ideas that are boring out of the way and frees your mind to get past something called a creative cliff. You know, all this stuff is, is what we learned then about really more advanced ideation technique. And that's the why of it is you've got to generate a lot of ideas if you want to have some kind of a breakthrough and come up with something new.
0: This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances at the end of a busy week. The last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions. I no longer use, but now I use rocket money and it does all of that for me. Rocket money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest they'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. That's rocketmoney.com smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com slash
2: smart. Right. Which I think, again, people go, yeah, I get that. But the the way you're talking about it, it, it's one of the first times I'm hearing of it kind of more than just a nicety, more than a human ability that we just don't utilize. It's human potential that we just don't build structure around or necessarily value in the day to day. And that's where it gets stuck. Right. Like, as I look at leaders I've seen as compared to podcast guests I've interviewed, a lot of leaders I see aren't particularly great at innovating. They're great at becoming leaders. And so that's where I get confused in some corporate environments is, do you believe that they are actually valuing innovation or do you see that the majority just kind of doing the things you need to get promoted?
1: So, you know, you go to so we have the pleasure of working with a lot of the startups at Stanford, you know, and they're they're struggling for, if you will, sort of oxygen. So they're innovating all the time. And when we finally get to something where you have product market fit, you know, in in a way, we all as consumers want many of the companies not to be very innovative. We want the traditional offer. We want we want it to be delivered on time. We want efficiency. Those those things become but it becomes grossly out of balance. Meaning those, those metrics, and that's why we called it, you know, Idea Flow, the business metric that matters. We want to try to get in people's head. You can measure on the innovation side. It's not fairy dust. You can measure the number of ideas created by a team. You can measure the number of things they eliminate. Many of the companies that we see successful with innovation are doing that. And that's that's the impetus for it. The, the efficiency side, the productivity side, you know, it's it takes over because it's it's got balance sheets, it's got dashboards, it's got you know Salesforce, it's got these huge companies that have built you know the ability to to measure all that and and um, you know really drive things like compensation and promotion based on that.
3: You see leaders, they're they're um, they're exceptional. They're almost by exception, right? You think about a Steve Jobs or a Jeff Bezos, right? I mean, these are truly exceptional leaders, but they're the exception, not the rule. You know, we wrote a a bonus chapter. It's a book that's available on our website called How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs. And the idea there is there are certain leaders who, you know, I was just watching this morning. Johnny Ive gave a talk about how every day at lunch, Steve Jobs had ideas for him. And he would say, uh, Johnny, I think I've got a pretty dopey idea. And Johnny would say, let's hear it. And he said, most of the time, they were terrible. But every once in a while, they would take the air out of the room, right? But let me ask you a question. Where is the leader who's willing to put out a ton of bad ideas?
2: Exa- exactly. Exactly
3: where Steve Jobs is different. That's where Jeff Bezos is different. I mean, when the kind of adult supervision came in to, you know, to try to run the place for a little bit there, I think it was a former leader of Black & Decker who came in as kind of you know, COO management supervision. He said, in, in my organizations and Fortune 500 companies, most people are, have 10 ideas a year. He's like, Jeff Bezos has 150 ideas a day. He's like, I just can't keep up. And you look at people who are truly exemplary in their field, they're idea machines. And you're right to say that many leaders are great at executing a known vision. But if you look at truly visionary leaders, whether they call it idea flow, whether they know it or not, they have built like, um, you know, uh, Brad Stone, the biographer of Jeff Bezos said that people said even back in his D.H. Shaw days when he was a hedge fund manager, he, would, he was keeping a note, notebook with him at all times. And he, they said that he would frantically write down ideas as if they would float away if he didn't write them down. Right. By the way, our Perry and my mentor, David Kelly, was good friends with the late comedian Robin Williams. And he tells us the same thing. He said everywhere he and Robin Williams went, he's got a yellow legal pad and he's writing down stuff all day long. And it's easy to think, oh, well, Robin Williams does that because he needs material. Well, do you know, to Perry's point, you're an email aficionado. Have you ever thought you need material? I would argue the question, every email subject line is a problem. Perry said every problem is an idea problem, but nobody thinks of an email subject line as an opportunity to go, what are 10? What are 20? Why do I just write down the first uh, you know subject line that comes to my mind, which research shows is very, very unlikely to be the best subject line for that email right? But we we just we just take everything as a given and we go, yeah, Robin Williams can write a bunch of stuff down because he's Robin Williams. And Steve Jobs can have a meeting with his designer every day, unlike every other major CEO and throw out doope, dopey ideas because he's Steve Jobs. And Jeff Bezos has this habit, but I'm not Jeff Bezos. I'm not Robin Williams. I'm not Steve Jobs. And our premise is, well, do you want to be? And if you want to be, start attending to ideas, right? It's It's And so it's just, it's flipping the causes and saying, actually, the kinds of people who become exceptional innovators are really attentive to ideas in the early stage.
2: What Perry said earlier, even relating it to this podcast, because in truth, I do not want to be Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos. Like, I just don't like work that much. But I think bringing it home to recognize how useful, not just having the skill set, but having a structure around the skill set can be in your everyday life. So we have passions, we have hobbies, we have, you know, things we want to do with our families or friends, or it all requires it. Everything in this world is created twice. First, it's created in your brain, and then it's created in reality. You're talking about, let's create so much in our brain that the likelihood of it becoming reality is higher. It's going to positively impact us and those around us. And there's a way in which you can build this capability.
1: And it's also just I think that we've been focused so much on business. I I personally find it you know equally valuable in my personal life. You know, it's just having an approach. And you know, I don't know if you have kids, Chris, but you know, if you have kids, it's like it's fabulous, right? It's all we talk about: growth mindset, right? It's like it's about asking questions, noticing things, being curious. You know, I I think it's um, I'm a better parent for sort of taking on these methods. And the other the flip side is you're, you're sort of pushing on the business and all that stuff. It's the, so much of the world is not structured in a way that, that, you know, makes it, Hey, this is great for, this is a right time for ideation. Let's all get together and throw ideas around. Let's think about analogs. Let's, let's, you know, take a trip to Arizona with my best friend and think about things. You know what I mean? It's not (laughs) like, it's kind of like, whoa, you know, but, but if you think about those ideas and you're looking for places to apply them, you know i've been really a good example is i've been really thoughtful with myself or a family member to take a walk in the afternoon you know it's just like we can leave that and covid kind of was helpful to make this now a ritual it's kind of you know it's like we can go take a walk and just you know take a 20 15 minute like whatever and that's when the ideas flow about you know what are we going to cook for dinner or what are we going to do for a weekend trip or what do we, you know like There's there's all that stuff comes and it comes out of turning something into a practice and thinking about this matters. How am I going to. And that works for me. You know, that's not something that might work for everybody else. But that works for me to say there's a there's a spot in the day that I want to do this thing that's tactical withdrawal, that's stepping away from electronics. Just there's no phones. There's no nothing. And it's sometimes super valuable, sometimes delivers, sometimes doesn't. But it's
3: always it's a persistent um, practice I have. And Chris, I mean, it's just worth, it's just worth like putting it, putting a pin there. Perry used the phrase tactical withdrawal. It's one of the chapters of the book. I mean, there's an entire chapter devoted to withdrawing from the creative challenge because the truth is a lot of times our subconscious brain needs to be given the space and permission to work. And it actually only happens when we step away, right? Einstein famously, if he was stuck on a math problem, he'd pick up his violin. Right. Just like Perry picks up a walk. Einstein would pick up the violin and there's loads of really great examples. Edison would take a nap in his thinking chair. Right. There's tons of great examples. But the point is, if you feel guilty about like if Perry felt guilty about taking a walk, it would not be an effective strategy for him. If Einstein felt guilty about playing the violin, it wouldn't be. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to almost give permission to folks to broaden the tool set of what are the available tools that I can draw on when I'm in a pinch. And, you know, Amos Tursky and Danny Kahneman, you know, they reinvented the field of economic theory based on a lot of the landmark experiments they ran at Hebrew University when they were rising stars there. And someone asked Amos Tursky years later, how did you guys do it? How did you come up with so many wildly inventive experiments? And Tersky's comment was, the secret to doing good research is you've got to be a little underemployed. You waste years when you're not able to waste hours. And Tersky was referring to the fact that he and Kahneman would walk around the Hebrew University campus laughing and people derided them in their department because those guys weren't working. And what they were doing was they were reinventing economic theory as we know it. But it required them realizing this is the way we work. And if you aren't aware that this is a legitimate way of working, then you just dive more into your email, you dive more into the spreadsheet, you dive more into the Microsoft Teams, not to, you know, dogpile on Microsoft, but the answers aren't always in the screen, right? Yeah. The answers are a lot of times, it's just giving your space. It's not even the conscious attention, but giving your brain the space through distraction and other means to form those unexpected connections in the background.
2: You mentioned something about the subconscious, and I have to ask you this. I mean, the logo on our podcast is a brain. What does the brain science say behind innovation, idea flow, creativity? On top of, is there truth to your subconscious can solve these problems and it feels like you manifested the answer or the reality?
1: Disclaimer, because this is Jeremy's wheelhouse. So, listeners, <laughs> they want to go to like 2x speed as he geeks out on some neuroscience, here you go. Well, man,
3: heads, I'm, go I'm ready, heads. Jeremy. I'm ready. You shouldn't have done that, Chris. Careful what you wish. <laughs> I mean, one, one is, you know, Reed Hoffman has said, I never go to sleep without giving my subconscious mind a problem to work on. And so I think that that's like, you know, validation from a modern thinker. You know, John Steinbeck said, there's rarely a problem that isn't more easily resolved once the committee of, of sleep has gathered to convene, you know, which which I love. But one of the, so that's just on, on sleep and manifesting. I had the experience this morning, actually. I awoke, you know, I'm on the East Coast today. I, I woke at 3 a.m. my body's time with an idea, with a breakthrough. Um, and I totally didn't expect it. I actually wrote it down and I was just like, wow, that's great. So I've experienced that. There is evidence to suggest it. But I want to come back to a different... We talk about cognitive biases. I think one of the most interesting ones when it comes to idea flow. I mean, the premise of idea flow is volume matters, quantity matters. Go for, don't look for a good idea. Look for more ideas or generate more ideas, not the idea. And our tendency is to try to find the answer. And the you know the daily practice we advocate, an ideally an idea quota is what we call it. Just where you flip your orientation, where every day instead of trying to find the right answer to. How should I title this email? How should I give this feedback? How should I open this presentation? Whatever, you just say. How many ways could I think of doing that? Right. So, but the, but the thing is, the cognitive bias that stands in the way of that is what uh, Abraham Luchens in 1942 called the einstilling effect, and what Luchens and Luchens identified then, and what's subsequently been validated by researchers at Oxford with eye tracking technology and kind of getting way more sophisticated, but what got validated. 80 years ago now is that when we think of a solution, we cease looking for other solutions. That's one. And two, we are unable to see better solutions. So cognitively what's happening is we have this bias that says, no, no, no we're done. We solved the problem, move on. And so a lot of times like getting back to what you said about listeners who they call and say, and I want to, I, I, you know, I want to do something. It, there's a tendency to think, the problem is the organization. If only the organization policies weren't this way. If only, you know, right now uh, we're working in an enterprise where legal has come up as kind of the scapegoat. But, you know, we, we were just having a team meeting this morning and we realized it's kind of convenient for this group to feel like legal is the reason that they can't do the thing that they're really all afraid to do. They're all afraid, but instead of saying, I'm afraid, they're saying, legal won't let me, right? But the truth is, as long as you're externalizing why you can't blank, you are not dealing with the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is ultimately your own way of thinking. And the, what, what Luchin's also uh, illuminated, and Carl uh, Dunker and others also did, is that when you're aware of that bias, you can start to short circuit it. And they would introduce simple, what they called interrupts, Um, like, uh, they would say something like challenge yourself and all of a sudden that would push people to kind of go beyond, but the Einstein effect, I affectionately refer to it as the anti Einstein effect because of its phonetic resemblance to a certain breakthrough thinker. But it's what keeps us from being breakthrough when we realize we have this tendency to just move on once we come up with one solution. And what the research suggests is very, very, very exceptionally rarely does the best answer come first. And and furthermore, your ability to continue to generate good answers deteriorates much less rapidly than you might assume. Barry mentioned this earlier, the other kind of cognitive bias at play is what's known as the creative cliff illusion, which alludes to the fact that most people have a belief that their creativity precipitously declines at a certain point over time. But it's an illusion because the truth is your creative ability persists much longer than you might expect. And furthermore, you can actually be a creative ramp where your ideas get better over time, provided that you expect them to improve. Mm. And so all that to say, we can almost hack our own brains if we become aware of a tendency to fixate on. Uh, the, you know, it's, it's also called functional fixedness or cognitive fixedness. And this, is, this stems from our deep aversion to uh, what's known as or, our, our deep longing for cognitive closure. Russian psychologist Ari Kruglowski identified that the unknown is one of the most psychologically distressing phenomena we experience as human beings. And so because it's so distressing, the moment a seemingly plausible idea comes up, what we do, forget the organization, forget the team, forget legal, what we do is we go, it's not unknown anymore. Let's just do that. And when you become aware of that and you see, wow, there's a muscle I want to flex here. The muscle is move past that feeling that you've already solved it and push yourself to think of other ideas and think of bad ideas. As Steve Jobs said, think of dopey ideas. And the truth is it just costs so little to push yourself to think of a few more. You know, it's like we're friends with uh, John Cassidy, who's the founder of Klutz Press. I don't know if you've done like the Klutz guide to juggling or stuff like that. No, but, I haven't. You know, the, the, so if you haven't read, it's a great book it comes with juggling balls and all. Um, but the whole first chapter is great for your kids. Great for my kids. And what you what the whole first chapter does is you basically lift the ball up and then you drop it and you let it hit the ground and then you throw it up and you let it hit the ground and we asked Cassidy about it, so why is the first chapter all just dropping the ball? And his thing is, well, you have to see that nothing is harmed by dropping the ball there's no damage there's no cost or consequence of dropping the ball and this daily idea quota that we advocate is something like that people have to realize that the cost of writing down a bad idea is basically zero but the benefit but of allowing your brain to vary beyond the norm because when you vary below the norm you also allow yourself to vary above the norm The, the the cost is very it's a very asymmetric equation it's basically a zero cost and enormously high benefit equation, but you have to be willing to let the ball hit the ground. You have to be willing to, pu- to push yourself.
2: You mentioned this idea of like fearing the unknown more than anything else. And is that part of the reason why people will procrastinate on something easy that they also know can have outsized returns? Because like this, I, write down 10 ideas a day, 20, whatever, right? I go, okay, let's say it's about podcast growth. Let's say that takes me 10 minutes. I spend more time drinking water. I mean, who knows? But I, I find it hard. Is it because of that unknown element?
1: Yeah, fear is definitely part of it, and it's also the. Um, a lot of this is about creative cliff. Is thinking, you know, I'm I've approached sort of my preparation for, for seeing you as I'm gonna you know read the website, Google a few things, listen to a few podcasts, and I'm 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 good to go. I've come up with the ideas. I'm I'm tapped out. What I what I need to do a lot of times is think when I'm feeling like I'm topped out is that's the cliff and pushing just beyond it is the point. And so it's it's understanding, you know, if, if you're a runner, right? You know, or a, or a, I'm a swimmer, you know, you kind of know, hey, when I'm at the end of that set and there's two more of whatever hundreds or 200s I'm gonna do, that's kind of the point. You know, I'm kind of used to it. It's like, the point is I'm gonna feel great if I push through. Ideas are like that as well, generating ideas. If you stick with it and push through all the the you know, briefly on brainstorming, you go through a period of brainstorming, and if we were brainstorming new ideas for guests or whatever for your podcast, we'd come up with 20 or 30 or something, we'd be like, huh, kind of a slow point. All right, well, it feels awkward. It feels kind of scary. I don't know what we're doing now. Let's move on. If we stick with it and deal with the uncomfortableness all of the data from brainstorming shows the best ideas usually come at the end when everybody's tired everybody feels tapped out so it's so you know it's all this stuff you get you as you understand it and start to use it you know you you'll see the results and then when you do that once it doesn't feel so awkward to do it again and then it doesn't feel awkward you know it doesn't feel awkward for everybody to pull out powerpoint and throw together a presentation for something that Really doesn't need a presentation, or you know, it's going to wait. You know what I mean? It's we've we've gotten used to plenty of things, you know, that are in the in the other side of our work lives or or you know, personal lives.
3: One thing I would say about procrastination, Chris, to your point, um, is procrastination is actually I would say it's a preservation mechanism as well. If you care about something, procrastination is almost your brain's way of allowing yourself to work on something in the background. And it can be a very useful tactic. Adam Grant talks about this in his podcast, which is great. Um, Or sorry, his TED Talk. He mentions the power of procrastination. He writes about that in originals. So I don't think all procrastination is bad. There are certain procrastination. If you don't care about the outcome, you're just stalling and you're wasting time. If you care, there's a lot of research that suggests it's a helpful strategy. What I would say, though, is care is kind of a double-edged sword. And going back all the way to the beginning of the conversation, you asked about what are some of the antidotes to the kind of the creative malaise that organizations find themselves in. And one is care, because the truth is, in a lot of organizations, people just don't care. You know why they don't innovate? They don't care. Doesn't matter. They're, they're not trying to solve a problem that matters to them. And so care is enormously um, it, catalytic in its ability to, to, to deliver breakthroughs. The challenge with care is if you care too much, you almost get perfectionistic, you almost get precious. And so to use the kind of podcast example, I don't think there's, a, there's like a, a lack of care in your case. I wonder whether the problem is it's so precious that you can't possibly approach it because unless it's perfect, you can't think about doing it. And so for us, it's like this, this if you don't have enough care, then go fill your care tank and go empathize with the people that you're designing for and, and keep a bug list of things that bother you in your life because that's a great source of stuff that you care about. If you care too much and you're being too precious, the other kind of half of idea flow, which we haven't even really scratched the surface of is, rapid and scrappy experimentation and deploying really cheap and clever experiments that give you high quality data as to whether you should deploy resources in a particular direction because what we would never advocate is chris choose your favorite idea and then spend 10 million dollars making it perfect before you launch right? And that's what a lot of organizations do. And it's a lot of, it's like, it's got to be just right. And the other half of idea flow, you know, if you're only generating ideas, but you're never experimenting, you don't have idea flow. You have what we call an idea pond, which is, and by the way, it's going to be stagnant. You know, the difference, the only difference between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea is totally dead. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. Sea of Galilee is one of the most biodiverse ecosystems in the world. They come from the same source. The difference is. The Dead Sea has no outlet, and that's a wonderful picture and parable of what happens when you aren't trying anything. When you aren't trying anything, that even your stockpile of ideas kind of rots. When you're trying stuff, it brings life and diversity to the whole system. And so, in your case, I would not that we've like talked about this much. My hunch would be there's probably more of a tendency towards perfectionism and preciousness that's probably keeping you from approaching the drawing board. And there, what you need is a healthy dose of scrappy experimentation to kind of get things going again.
2: Well, you're also now a psychologist. I, I mean I just want to <laughs> let you know because you 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 absolutely hit the nail on the head. In fact, as we as we spend the last 10 minutes talking about your favorite strategies, and and we talked about many thus far, but one I wanted to ask you was I tend to ideate, I, I keep them in my phone. So I'm no Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos, but I love ideas. Um but I very quickly prove why they won't work. And then that demotivates me.
1: I, I love your asking this, Chris. It's a, one, one other thing I was thinking about that's um, important for everyone to, to think about is it, we've been talking about um, idea generation and idea evaluation being two separate things. And very often they become simultaneous for us as humans. Definitely at work, they becomes like, you think of a good idea for something you're going to present, and then you say it, right? You don't think about, hey, I'm sort of thinking about a bunch of ways to articulate this point. Maybe I'll jot a few down, and then I'll pick one. And thinking about idea generation and validation being separate tasks. Jeremy talked about experimentation. That's, and, and too often we think, I got that great idea. How in the world would I test it? How much would it cost? Huh? All these things start bombarding that idea. And trying to build it out into something bigger versus saying, I'll stay with generation for a period of time. Let me let me think about, it. and we can go through sort of different tools, but if that makes sense to your listeners, if you're if you're quickly thinking about, you know, how, you know, let's say I'm thinking about what to make for dinner. Oh, do I have the pan for that? Do I have the oven? Do I have the time? Do I, you know, then I'm not, I gotta think about like what are the 20 things I could make for dinner that might be really fun as a family. Oh, now that I have those 20 things, now let me apply, we call it selection criteria. What could I do in the time I have? What could I do in one trip to the grocery store? What could I there's ask those questions, but separate those things. And that's a big part of the practice of, of generating ideas, is thinking about generation being a separate task from evaluation. And I literally have a wall here that's ideas and a flat surface that's I I try to think of it spatially, is I put ideas up. And if I wanna work on something, I pull it down. And it's sort of like a mode, I'm sitting and processing or I'm, gener- I'm standing and generating.
2: What's another that you find, a very common roadblock that people face as it comes to idea generation that you find is always a strong recommendation?
1: I, I pay attention, this is not even in the book. I wish we'd, I, it's been more thoughtful as I've used some of the techniques more and more. One of the techniques is about listening to novices like, you know, people that are new to something notice things that you don't notice. My reaction to that a lot of times just self-efface is sometimes being annoyed. Like, oh, man, come on. Like, we got to get, you know. And what I've realized is annoyance, being a little bit annoyed or a little bit like this is slowing down, is actually an indication I need to stop and implement a practice. And I should listen and jot some things down. So I, that's one thing I think is a, is a hack to 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 listen more. And sometimes being frustrated or annoyed, it, the innovation's right in front of me. I'm just so much in execution mode. I'm not open to listen. And if I pause for a second, you know. And by the way, tip for your bonus tip for your users. This is great for marriage. If you're like <laughs> ever know what you're it's like I actually listen more. Yeah. You know, it makes you a better listener and you're actually taking in that material and going to use that material. And I, that's one. Of, and it came out of this thing with um, this simple thing we cover in the book, which is bringing novices into your work. The best thing you could do if you are one of the not the best thing, a good thing you could do to improve the podcast is take on a summer intern and ask him, hey, what did you notice about that podcast? What do you think about the studio? What do you think about the sound quality? What do you think about this? What do you think? And just listen. They'll, they'll generate loads of new ideas for you.
2: OK, I, I got to write that down because I have a question. But, Jeremy, I want to hear yours.
3: I also would draw on the broad lever of collaborators. So one of the things that we, an entire chapter of the book is actually dedicated to the notion of one of the ways to shape up your thinking is to change who you're working with or how you're working, how you're interfacing with the world. If you think, if you take a step back, neurologically what's happening is new ideas are just new connections. That's it an unexpected connection between things you know could be things you just learned but like there's no such thing as a new idea that comes from nowhere it's like ex nihilo is not a human capacity okay the only way we build new ideas is from component parts um so if you take that as a premise then there's a question of like how do i source component parts like or the way that we like think of it is like how do i gather legos Because like every conceptual input is a Lego that I can try on in combination with all the other things I know, right? Well, so collaborators are a great way. They just bring a different bag of Legos. Every collaborator you deal with is bringing a different bag of Legos. Now there's a question of whether you can find the right Legos in combinations. It's not to say that it's like magic. But one of the things that Ben Franklin did, which we love, you think about the breadth of his – impact in the world. I mean, not only was he the foremost author in colonial America, he's a foremost statesman and inventor, you know, from bifocals to the lightning rod to the Continental Congress, for crying out loud, right? The guy had just enormous breadth of innovation. You look at somebody like that and go, wow, if I had just thought of libraries, I would call my life's work done. If I just thought of the fire department, right? (laughs) All these things this guy did, like, it's incredible, right? Never mind printing money, right? Well, if you look at his life, one of the things he prioritized, and by the way, I would say as, like a, as a hack to learning from people, the, the, um, look at the things they do regularly. That's a really good sample on what drives their thinking. And one of the things Ben Franklin did regularly, every week for 30 years, in fact, that's how regularly he did it, was he met with what he called a Junto, which is his group of like-minded artisans from other industries. And every week he met with his Junta. He called it his Leather Aprons Club. But they would go around and they had a list of questions that they would often refer to. For, for example, has anyone moved to Philadelphia whom we ought to know and why? Has anyone's business fallen into disrepute and what's the reason? Are there any new advances in the sciences that might have bearing on what we're doing? And they would go through these lists of questions. Now, this isn't Ben's team. They aren't like, they aren't an intact team that's like working on a project. And it's not even Ben's company. It's not a cross-functional meeting. It's a group of individuals from wildly diverse domains and disciplines who all gather for the purpose of learning and sharing information and mutual edification. And he did it every week for 30 years. And we've taken a lot of inspiration. It's, It's actually no wonder that Franklin had so many inventions across so many different disciplines when you think about his practices. Well, as we spend time in organizations, the vast majority of individuals spend the vast majority of their time working with the same two or three people all the time. There's almost no variation in their collaboration set. And and yet the research, Martin Roof, uh, uh, MIT uh, ec- economist, uh, conducted a study of entrepreneurial ecosystems. And what he found was folks who had uh, a network characterized by many weak links innovated at something like three times the rate of folks who had a small network of strong links. And so cultivating weak links, so you can think about it in an organization or in society, but having that sense of cultivating weak links, as Franklin did and many others do. Mark Parker did it famously at Nike. He would have these dinners at his house with you know, the ex-CEO of Nike with uh, tattoo artists and graffiti artists and skaters and musicians, hip-hop artists, et cetera. He'd have these dinners and he's effectively holding a Junto, right? Right. But the point is, he's being he's creating space in his calendar on a regular basis to interface with folks who aren't in his organization, they aren't in his industry, but they're similarly curious and committed to sharing information together.
2: Uh, it's just it's fantastic. Check out the book; it's called Idea Flow: The Only Business Metric That Matters. Uh, Jeremy and Perry, I truly appreciate it. I just wanted to, before we wrap up, leave you a moment to. You know where else are you? You mentioned the extra chapters. I mean, Perry's dropping knowledge that's not even in the book. So this is like you know hot off the press. Um, For people who are in this space, where can we go?
1: So we got there's a website for the book, so you can you can see all kinds of things there. And um, my hope is we'd continue to get input from readers as we have. We had a really fun thing where we had a bunch of folks who were kind enough to read the manuscript as it was sort of becoming a book and. A lot of the, the content comes from things like that. So there'll be things on the website, tools, techniques, things from our classes. We'll post them and and allow people to use them. That's one great place. And um, you can always just Google us and find us. You know, there's so many interesting events. Uh, we work at a great place in Stanford, and you know, there's all kinds of events happening there that are online. A lot of them. Um, Some are open to the public, some are nominal fees and some are, you know, you got to be a student, but keep a you know, sign up for those lists.
3: Yeah, we were both on LinkedIn. You can check us out there. Uh, I'm on on Twitter, Jeremy Utley at Twitter. Um, And as Perry mentioned, our website, ideaflow.design, we've got a free bonus chapter there, How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs. And we... Would love for people to check it out. We'd love for people to let us know what they think of the book. And we're eager to be transforming as many lives with this material as possible. So thanks for giving us the opportunity to share with you and your listeners today.
0: This week's guests were Jeremy Utley and Perry Claibon. The episode was hosted as always by Chris Stemp and edited by yours truly, John Rojas. Jeremy and Perry's book, Idea Flow, The only business metric that matters will be available on October 25th, wherever books are sold. And now to the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at at smartpeoplepodcast.gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.